we apologise for the very poor quality of the following recording of a sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This has been caused, unfortunately, by the very serious deterioration of the original master tape. We hope that it doesn't spoil your enjoyment of this message by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, in the fourth chapter, verses 22, 23, and 24. Verses 22 to 24, in the fourth chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, that he put off concerning the former conversation, the old men which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new men, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now we are considering this uh, statement here made by the Apostle in connection with his argument that he's developing, you remember in this section. He is now applying the great doctrine of the Christian faith to the daily life of these Ephesian Christians. And his great point is this, that they no longer are to go on living as they once did. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, etc. He says that's inconceivable. You have not so learned Christ as to continue like that. If you only have heard him, he says, and have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, you can't possibly go on like this. Because, as we saw, his argument is that everything about the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us that we are to put off this old men and leave the life of sin. Everything I say that he did. Think of his incarnation, his birth. Why did he come into the world? What was his object? Well, it was to deliver his people from their sins, as the angel said to Joseph. That's the grand object of his coming. And all he did was designed to that end. Here we are on a Palm Sunday morning. I read to you that portion from the Gospel of Matthew. We've been singing these hymns. That entry into Jerusalem, which he made so deliberately, though he knew that Herod and others were plotting to kill him, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Why did he do this? Well, he had come in order to die for us, to taste death for every man. And he had come to do that in order that he might deliver us and emancipate us. Then you see, everything about him, is designed to that end, and we were proposing to do this morning more or less what Jeremy Taylor did in that hymn that we've just been singing, adapted from his work. You notice how he puts it. Christ enters into Jerusalem, and what he did next was he went into the temple and turned out the money changers. These people who had made the house of God a den of thieves. He went into Jerusalem to cleanse and to clear out the temple. And as Jeremy Taylor puts it, he came into the world to do the same thing for us. For we are meant to be temples of the living God. Know ye not that your bodies, says Paul to the Corinthians, are the temples 
of the Holy Ghost that dwelleth in you. You see, everything in this teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ leads to this inevitable conclusion that we are to put off the old men. That was our former conversation. That was our former way of living. You don't go on like that. He says, if you really have learned Christ, follow it out, he says. Put off concerning that former way of living, the old men, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Well, now then, we've already considered the meaning of this term, the old men, a most important term from the standpoint of doctrine and theology, and especially from the standpoint of the doctrine of sanctification, the old men. And we've also looked at the uh, picturesque expression about putting off the once and for all aspect of it especially. And then we've begun to consider this question. Why should we put off the old men? I've already given the answer in general. We must follow the apostle as, it gives, as he gives it to us in detail. Why should we put off the old men? Now, last Sunday morning I gave one reason for that. And it is, of course, the first and the most important. It is this. You are to put off the old men because the old man is already dead. We were looking at that apparent paradox. It is because the old man has been crucified with Christ and has died with him that we are to put him off. I mentioned to put it in a phrase like this, you remember. I suggested that what the apostle is really saying to us here can be put in this form. Be what you are. You are dead with Christ. You finished with that old Adamic man. Very well then, you're a new man in Christ. Be what you are. So there's no contradiction in his telling us to put off the old man. Whereas he's already told us that the old man is dead. Now, I gave an illustration last Sunday morning and I want to repeat it because I think it helps. We are far too often in the position of many of those poor slaves in the United States at the time, you remember, of the American Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves. The edict was given, the promulgation was made, that slavery had been abolished. Yet some of them had been so accustomed to the life of a slave, they couldn't realize that they were free. They went on behaving as if they were slaves. So what was said to them was this, look here, be now what you are. Don't go on living as if you're a slave, you're no longer a slave. Put off slavery. You can say that to people who've just been set free. Well, let me give you another illustration, which I think helps to make it clear. How often do we in our conversation and in dealing with others say something like this? You may be dealing with an adult person, a man or a woman, and this friend is afraid of something. Afraid of some pain or something. What do we say to such a person? Well, isn't this what we say? We say, don't be a baby. Now, you see, you say, don't be a baby to somebody who isn't a baby. It's because this man is no longer a baby that you're right when you say to him, don't be a baby. You're saying virtually this to him, you're no longer a baby. Well, then don't behave as if you're a baby. You know, let's put off the old man. You've left that, you've left childhood. 
We're no longer a baby. We are a man. Well, then put off being a baby. Don't be a baby. Now, that's exactly the kind of thing that the apostle is saying here. Put off the old men. Why? Well, because you're no longer the old men. The old man has died with Christ, was crucified with him. He's gone. Therefore, put him off. Don't go on being a baby. Well, well, that was our first reason, but let us come to the further reason which the apostle gives us here and which we must look at this morning. Here's another reason for putting off the old men. And that is his condition and the direction in which he is going. Put off the old men, says the apostle, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Has nothing more to do with him. And has nothing more to do with him because of his character, because of his nature. Everything, says the apostle, belonging to that old life is offensive. Has nothing to do with it. Take it off, throw it away. As you take that gown off and put it on one side, do that with this old habit, this old nature, which he thus describes as the old man. Well, why? Well, here is, here is his analysis. The first thing he calls attention to is the condition of the old man and the direction in which he is heavily or moving. He puts that in one word, corrupt. But it's a very big word, this, and it must be split up into its component parts. At birth, according to the Bible, all of us inherit a corrupted nature. There's none of the Peter Pan theory in the Bible. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, I was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. The nature that we inherit is a corrupted and a defiled nature. The whole of life bears eloquent testimony to that. The smallest infant gives abundant proof of it. We're already born for at worst, but according to the apostle here, it's, it's even worse than that. Although we start with a corrupt nature, that becomes even more corrupted, which is corrupt, we read here in this authorized translation, but a better translation would be this, which is being corrupted or becoming corrupt, even getting worse than it was at the beginning. But there is another shade of meaning in the word that the apostle used, and we must bring it up. It is this. It means tending to destruction. And of course, we normally, as we use the word corrupt, we carry that meaning in our minds always, don't we? Uh, corruption and decay and pollution all go together. You talk, when you talk about anything uh, corrupting or becoming corrupt, you think of putrefaction and decay and pollution. Well, now, that's in this word. So that not only is it becoming corrupted, it is disintegrating. 
it is moving in the direction of destruction. So that is what the apostle says about this old man that we've got to put off, put him off, he says, because he is becoming more and more polluted and decaying, and he's advancing rapidly in the direction of corruption. Now, this is uh, what he says, in other words, about uh, the life of all those who are not Christian. And I suggest again that the history of humanity confirms him to the very hilt. Biographies prove it. History proves it. There is this process of decaying and of declension moving steadily always in the direction of final destruction. Now, let me give you one or two other examples of the same kind of statement which are to be found in the scripture. Listen to the same apostle putting it to the Galatians in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived, he says. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. That's it. Sowing to the flesh always leads to corruption. This decay that ends in destruction. But on the other hand, he says, He that serves to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Or take the Apostle James, he's got the same thing really in his first chapter in verse 15, when in dealing with the temptation and sin, he puts it like this. Notice the steps. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Lust, you see, starts, and it brings forth sin. Uh, well, there already is the beginning of the corruption. Well, when that goes on, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death, destruction. The process of corruption ends inevitably in a final destruction. Or, if you like, take that statement of it which this apostle gives us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now then, the apostle's argument is, you see, that the life of the Gentiles, the life of those who are not Christian, is a life which is decaying and putrefying, and it's a life which is moving in the direction of a final destruction. Oh, what an eloquent statement this is of the state of society and of the world today. Are we not witnessing, alas, at the present hour, this decline, this, this decaying process? Don't we see it happening in the moral realm, in every respect? I'm constantly directing attention to it because, my friends, the moral declension that we are witnessing today in this country and in every other country in the world is the direct outcome of the godlessness and the irreligion and the absence of the Christian spirit in society. It's an absolute proof of what the apostle says. Put off the old man, he says. He's decaying and he's going to destruction. And the whole world is manifesting the truth of the Apostle's diagnosis this morning. The world never improves. Never. Well, that's a categorical statement. 
which I am ready to substantiate. The world left to itself always gets worse and worse and worse. And if you take a broad general view of history and uh, come to me and say, oh, but look here, wouldn't you agree that at that point the world did seem to be rising to greater heights? Uh, wouldn't you say that there was some evidence of that towards the middle of the last century? I would agree entirely. You get these cycles. There are improvements from the conscience. Yes, but the question is, what is responsible for the improvements of them? And the answer is always the same. Revivals of religion. The greatest and the best periods in the history of the world have always been those that have followed religious revivals and reawakenings. Without a single exception. And therefore, you see, the opposite is still true, that without this influence of the Holy Spirit, the world, because of this decay that is in its constitution, goes from bad to worse. And it's not only true of the world in general. It is true of the individual. Every man who lives and who passes through living to old age has to fight against cynicism. Very few people carry their youthful idealism with them into middle age and beyond. What does it do to? Ah, uh, it's this corruption, this putrefaction, it's this process of decay. Man, I say, left to himself, he inevitably decays, and he loses the gleam and the vision and the moral resilience and the protest against unworthiness. He protects himself. He lives a life of ease. He does as little as he can and says, why should I be bothered? Anything for a quiet life. And so on. That's it. That's a part of the corruption. It isn't that we start perfect, I say, but the point I'm making is that though we start imperfect, we become worse. Is being corrupted and is moving in the direction of destruction. That's the first thing he tells us about this old nature that we are to put off. But then he doesn't leave it at that. He says that that is it in and of itself. Then secondly, he tells us something about the influences that are impelling and driving and urging this old man in that direction of destruction. And what are these influences? Well, he calls them lust, which is corrupt according to the lust of deceit. Lusts. Now, here is a tremendous letter. What is the meaning of this term, lusts? We've already met it at the beginning of the second chapter. But come, let us again make sure that we are clear in our minds as to what it means. Now, the word itself actually simply means a strong or a mastering desire. You remember our Lord said just before the end, with desire have I desired, he says, to take that supper with you. The word there uses the same word that is used elsewhere for lust and lust. It means a strong desire. That is the original meaning of the word, a strong or a mastering desire, whether good or bad. But you see, the very fact that we tend to think instinctively now of something which is bad when we use 
the word lust tells us a great deal about men and about human nature, doesn't it? Lust, by now, has come to mean something almost entirely and exclusively bad for this good reason. But the overmastering and overpowering desires of the vast majority of people are evil. So lust has become synonymous with evil desire. And what the Apostle says here is that these lusts that are within us are corrupting and destroying. He that stays to the flesh and on the flesh reap corruption. They drive us in the direction of corruption and destruction. He says the old men which is corrupt according to, as the result of, the lust of the deceit. That's the exact conclusion. Well, then, what does this mean? Well, here is the biblical analysis of it. And this is where we see the real tragedy of sin. The natural instincts in all of us are not bad. There's nothing wrong with a natural instinct. The instinct for food, hunger, hunger instinct. Sex. All these instincts that are in our human nature are in and of themselves not only not bad, but good. It's God who put them into men. It is God who has endowed us with these instincts. They have been given to men for the enjoyment and the preservation of life. All these instincts. Self-defense, protection, and all the other instincts. They are, I say, good in and of themselves, as long as they are under control. God made men perfect. And the part of the perfection of men was that not only had men been given these various instincts and powers and propensities, but God had put them, as it were, in such an order and in such a peculiar arrangement in men that they were all meant to minister to men's good and to his pleasure and to his enjoyment of life. And God, in other words, God put them like this. The instincts, which are normally in the body, were meant to be under the control of the mind. God gave men the mind, his brain, and his mind, and he meant, he, he meant the mind and the brain to control these other instincts. That is the order we were put in cures, if you like. And then, over and above, on top of the mind, God put in men the conscience. The mind alone isn't enough. God gave men a conscience, which is higher than the mind and gives instructions to the mind. And then, you see, he made men in such a way that he made them in his own image. But the conscience was meant in turn to be controlled by God himself. Now, there's men, as God made him, perfect animal, if you like, with a perfect body. He has these instincts that the animal has. There's nothing wrong with them. And for a man to say that there's anything wrong in any one of these instincts is to deny the scripture. 
One of have been foolish people in the church in ages past, forgive me for speaking plainly, who have said that sex in and of itself is sinful. That's a lie. And that is why, you see, the celibacy and so on is advocated by the Roman church and others. It's utterly unscriptural. There's nothing wrong in sex. It is to say that God has put something evil into men. These souls are dead. Yes, but they must be in their right position, in their right place. Governed and controlled and ordered by the mind and the understanding, and that by the conscience and death by God Himself. Oh, here's the tragedy of men in sin, here's the tragedy of the world, that the order has been reversed, and that mankind is being governed by its instinct. And when the instinct gets into control, it becomes a lust. You see, when the thing that is meant to be under control takes charge and governs the whole life, there is force. And that is exactly what is meant by a lust. It means an affection or an instinct taking charge of us and governing everything and silencing the mind and the conscience and spurning the voice of God. That is what is meant by this state of chaos and confusion. Now, the Bible sometimes calls this inordinate affections. Nothing wrong with the affections, but the affections must never become inordinate. And you see, that is where man denies his own being, leave alone denies God. And that's the trouble, says the apostle, with the Gentiles. They're being governed and controlled by their lusts. Perhaps the old men. Stop being like that. You are denying your own human nature. And you are denying the very essence of your being as it came forth from the hands of God. That's the trouble in the world this morning that it's controlled by lust, by desire. It's the one thing that is responsible for all our troubles. Individual, personal, married relationships, home, families, relatives, classes in society, groups in industry, nations, big divisions of nations between, behind certain curtains. It's the whole explanation of everything. These desires are in control and their government and reason and understanding have been thrown overboard. And God is not in all their thoughts. Oh yes, the decay and the steady movement to destruction is the result of the dominance the tyranny of lusts. What a havoc sin has made of men and of this world of men. It's turned men upside down, as it were, and has made him an animal and something even worse, because he was better and is meant to be better. So that when a man is governed by his instincts as an animal is, he's worse than a beast. But there it is. And that brings me to the third and the last thing which the Apostle says. You notice his analysis? He 
people talk about psychological analysis. If you're interested in psychology, here it is. That it's most brilliant and perfect and wonderful. This meaning is in the direction of decay. What's speaking it for the lust? That's the power. Oh, yes, but what is it that controls the lust? You notice his answer. He says it's defeat. This has got it here. According to the deceitful lusts. The better translation, as I've been suggesting, is according to the lusts of deceit. In other words, the real ultimate controlling power is this deceit, as he calls it. And what deceit does is to manipulate the lusts. And the lusts, in turn, manipulate the poor men. And there is the old men moving rapidly in the direction of destruction. Well, this is a very wonderful way of describing it, isn't it? Deceit. I wonder if we don't realize that the greatest characteristic of the life of the world is deceit. The power at the back of all this trouble is a deceitful power. Now, the Bible is full of this teaching. And I want to analyze it for you according to the biblical analysis. Let, let us start therefore with the highest power of all at the very top. The devil. The devil is the one who is ultimately responsible for the state of every individual and of the state of the whole world. And if there is one thing that is more characteristic of the devil than anything else, it is this element of deceit. Is deceitfulness. He's ruined the life of men, he's ruined the world, and he's done it in his subtlety and in his deceit. This is what the scripture says about him, Genesis 3 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Listen to Paul putting it in 2 Corinthians 11 3. For I fear lest by any means, he says, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. That's what he was afraid of with regard to those Corinthians. That as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety and his deceit, he would do the same to them. And indeed he had done the same in Corinth. You see it in the early churches as depicted in the New Testament, how the devil came in with his deceitfulness and brought havoc in the churches. That's his characteristic, always. Our Lord says he was a liar from the beginning. He was a liar and the father of liars. The whole trouble of the world is that it doesn't realize that it's being fooled and deceived. Because the whole nature of the devil is one of deceit. But not only is that true of the devil himself, it's true of his agents. It's true of everybody whom he uses. There are some very graphic descriptions of sin in the Bible, and every time it's a picture of deceit. Read the book of Proverbs, for instance. And there you see how the harlot is described with all her deceitfulness. And it is the whole characteristic, the paint and the powder, and the appearance of the make-believe, it's deceit. 
Well, but listen to Peter putting it very clearly in his second epistle, second chapter, verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. There were people who see in the early church, they went round and they said, look here. You know, they said, we don't say that Peter and Paul and these people haven't preached the gospel. Yeah, they did preach the gospel, but you know, they've added a kind of legalism to it. They've made it too narrow. They said, you needn't believe all that. It's much too strict. It's much too cramped and confined. This is the gospel, they said. And they promised them great liberty. You could be a Christian, you could go to heaven and live as you like in this world. It is marvelous. It's wonderful. Listen to us, Peter. Well, they promised them liberty. They themselves are the servants of corruption. Clouds without water, he tells them. Spots in their feasts. I exhort you, beloved people, to go home and read the second chapter of the second epistle of Peter. And there you'll have this analysis of the deceitfulness of the devil's agents. But I can put it to you in one word. There is one word that tells us all about it, and it's the word Judas. Judas. The one who betrayed his Lord and Master. Just before that first Good Friday, we think of such a man on a day like this. His deceitfulness, his subtlety, his dishonesty. There's nothing more terribly you can say about a man or a woman than that they've behaved like a Judas. Same man was involved with betrayal. Oh, I say it's the great message of the Bible. You'll find it everywhere in the book of Psalms. But think of sin as a power, and you find it even here. Listen to the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews 3.13. Beware lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If a man becomes hardened as a Christian, it's always because of the deceitfulness of sin. People say, you know, I don't feel as I used to do. I seem to become hard and cold. Well, somewhere or another, you're being deceived by sin. Listen to Paul saying it again in Romans 7, which we read at the beginning. For sin is as taken occasion by the commandment, deceive me, and by it it's me. And isn't that the whole of his argument in that chapter? This is how he works it out. He said, oh, what a terrible, deceitful thing sin is. He said, sin is as deceitful as this. He said, it fools a man about the law. The law is good and righteous and holy and just. But you know, he said, I found this, that the very law that was given to man in order to save him from sin made me sin. The very law that tells me not to do a thing creates in me a desire to do it. And that is why I often pointed out that all our reliance upon morality teaching is not only unchristian and unscriptural, it's naive. It shows a profound ignorance of man's psychology and sin. Unto the pure, all things are pure. Yes, but unto those that are not pure, even that which is pure becomes impure. That's Paul in writing to Titus. You see, because of the deceitful nature of sin within us, being enlightened about the nature of sin may lead us to sin. In telling people not to do things, you are stimulating a desire within them to do it. That is why I have always said to young people, 
There are powerful advisors them to read books on the so-called mastery of sex and so on. I've told them to avoid them as the very plague. They'll do you more harm than good. There's nothing that can deal with this problem but the Holy Spirit. It's dangerous to read anything else because of the deceitful nature of sin. And then finally, let me put it like this. Sin in ourselves is always deceitful. Jeremiah said this once and forever. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's Jeremiah 17.9. Have you discovered that about yourself, my friend? That your heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then himself doesn't know it. He's a mass of contradictions. He's fooling himself constantly. And that is the terrible thing about sin. It is not much that it fools other people. It fools the man himself. That's Paul's whole agony in the seventh of Romans. What can I do about it? He says, Oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I can't deliver myself, because when I try to do so by reading the law, I find it inflames my passions. It rouses these instincts within me. So the very law can't help me. Well, what is there that can help me? And there's only one answer, I thank God. Through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Well, now, as I close, let me be intensely practical by putting it like this. I think I've demonstrated to you that sin in every respect is deceitful from the devil down. The devil, his agents, sin itself, sin in me and in my members. How does it deceive? How does this element of deceit come out in sin? Well, here it is, it seems to me. It always comes to us as a would-be friend. It always flatters us. The devil knew, didn't he? In his subtlety and his deceitfulness, he came to Eve. And he flattered her. He said, look here. God isn't fair to you. He's put this prohibition. He shouldn't. He's afraid you'll become as he is. You see, he was paying her a subtle compliment. Sin always comes with a smile and it's most ingratiating and a compliment. And it always pays us compliments. We are very wonderful if we only listen. Plays on our pride. In some shape or form, our appearance, our good looks, our nature, something about us. Wonderful. And so it deceives us by flattering us. It's always attractive, of course. It's a very ugly thing in itself, but as I've said, it knows how to use the paint and the powder. That's how the Bible describes the harlot always, the paint and the powder. She's pretending to be something she isn't. And she knows if she doesn't appear attractive, she won't entice. Sin everywhere does that. In every realm, it always comes in such an attractive form. And we are fools enough to look at the surface and to judge by outward appearance and not by the reality itself. 
And then another thing which sin does, and this is a part of its whole art of deceit, it always discourages thought. And always discourages meditation. You see, sin knows that it's only got one way of succeeding, and that is to play upon our feelings and desires. If the mind rarely begins to operate, sin is finished. But therefore, in its subtlety, it plays on the feelings and discourages mind and thought. We've all known this. We all know it constantly. You find yourself in a temper. Why, well, that was because you didn't think what you were doing. You see, they governed you and controlled you or anything else that you may do. And indeed, it does it like this. It makes us live for the moment only. We never think beyond but just this one moment. And then it's got you. If only men and women thought ahead, how different life would be, but they don't. Sin discourages thought. And it's a part of its strategy of deceit. And then think of the plausible arguments it brings forward. Well, it's quite natural. It isn't as if they're asking you to do something unnatural. After all, you've been made like this. Why? Are you saying that uh, you're to crucify your own powers? That's to deny your personality. You want to express yourself. Surely you're meant to express yourself and the whole of yourself. It's only natural, says him, how plausible it's argument. And then in the next place, you see, it's not only plausible in its arguments, it conceals certain facts and certain factors. Here it is appearing before us and flattering us and decked up and dressed and attractive, perfectly natural, everything all right, and it deliberately keeps in the background what? Right and wrong, moral categories, they're not allowed to come in. God, what's not? God's law, certainly not. Never mentioned, never come into the argument. Then consequences of this action, does a man stop to think of them and to work it all out? Of course he doesn't, he doesn't even think about them. The dangers of habit never enter into the discussion. Why? No, certainly not, says the man. I'm not proposing to be a drunkard. I'm only having one glass of beer or whatever it is. And a drunkard? Of course not. He doesn't realize that the first leads to the second and the second to the third. And a habit grips us. And what a terrible thing a habit is. And how difficult to break. But that doesn't come into the consideration. Sin keeps it out of sight. It suppresses facts and certain vital factors. And then the subtlety of the appeal, the false motives. Oh, how many a man has gone to destruction because he really thought that he was out to perhaps some knowledge. A man might say, of course, I don't believe in reading bad books, but uh, after all, it's a business, man's business in life to equip himself with knowledge. I really am out to have theoretical knowledge and understanding, so he I've asked this question before from this book, but let me ask it again. What is precisely your motive and your raw reason for reading all the details that are given in the newspapers of these divorce cases? What's your real reason for reading? Is it that you may be able to discuss some modern affairs with men and women, and that, that you may be able to warn the young against certain dangers? Is that your reason? That is probably the reason that sin suggests to us the plausibility, the deceitfulness of it all. 
Do all you can to destroy it and to mortify it. The New Testament is full of this. The thing itself is so horrible, it's so foul, it's so deceitful. For gospel concerning the former conversation, the old man that is being corrupted and going in the direction of destruction as the result of the loss of this. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.